Good afternoon and welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on this lovely Thursday afternoon. Have you ever tried to have a close, loving relationship with someone you don't know? It's not easy. Many of us would never dream of attempting such intimacy with a human stranger. And yet many of us try to do just that, just that with God. And just as with people, if we don't know God, we can't love him. Now, thankfully, we can find help in the writings of people like St. Thomas Aquinas, one of my favorite theologians. Kevin Vost joins us to talk about whether Aquinas can answer some of our most important questions about God. Kevin Vost holds a doctoral degree in psychology and has taught psychology at Aquinas College in Nashville, Tennessee, the University of Illinois at Springfield, McMurray College, and Lincoln Land Community College. He has served as a research review committee member for American Mensa, a society promoting the scientific study of human intelligence. Kevin is a prolific writer, having written more than 20 books, including Catholic Answers, Memorize the Reasons, and he appears regularly in Catholic media. Kevin, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thanks so much for having me with you today, Marcus. Oh, it, it, it's genuinely an honor. And uh, we, we were very grateful that you were able to because your book is undoubtedly incre- intriguing. So before diving into the content of the book, just tell us what prompted you to write this book. We're looking at Kevin Vost's book, What is God? Answering the World's Most Important Questions with Help from St. Thomas Aquinas. And it's published by Catholic Answers Press. So, yeah, tell us what prompted you to write this book. Uh, yes, the, the main reason goes way back, Marcus. Uh, I, I was a person raised a Catholic and became an atheist in my late teens, and I stayed an atheist for a, the next 25 years. Oh, wow. Until in my early 40s, through a series of, event, of events, I read St. Thomas Aquinas uh, for the first time. And, and through Thomas, I realized that these uh, arguments from atheists that had pulled me away from the faith, I realized and was amazed to find that he had answered them you know, so long ago, over 700 years ago, and borrowing from philosophers and theologians who lived long before him. So, so anyway, it was some of this very material in this book that most drew me back to the faith. I mean, there's Thomas has his fa- famous five ways or proofs of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the Quinquivia. Briefly addressed in this book, yes, and he does it very, very briefly in the Summa Theologica, my main first source. But then he really goes in great detail on these different attributes of God. What does it mean to say that God is simple, that God is perfect, that God is eternal, that God is infinite? Things like that. And it was when I was reading through a lot of those that I realized, boy, I I saw how far off I was as an atheist and and how weak those arguments were, because I found that Thomas had answered them so beautifully. So I wanted to kind of, you know, share some of this, hopefully, with other people to maybe simplify and modernize some of the language to share some of these insights that made such a difference to me. That's outstanding, and uh, you you probably don't know, but you and I are kindred spirits in in that regard. You know, raised Catholic, fell away from the faith, became militant atheists, and um, now I have not written a book on the existence of God, although I hope to one day. Uh, And and I'm looking at the dedication in your book, and you start the dedication with the word uh, with the words "grandchildren are the crown of the aged," Proverbs seventeen six. Would you like to tell us a little about that before we go go into the content of the book? Well, I sure will. You know, I've been blessed to write a number, a couple of dozen Catholic books now, which I dedicated to my children and my wife. And mm-hmm. then the last few years, we started having uh, grandchildren enter the world. <laughs> so so this particular one is dedicated to uh, Elena Belvos. She was born uh, to our oldest son uh, the day after Easter this year. So this is her dedication. She's just a little, what is she, eight, eight months old or, or so, or getting close to that. It's truly beautiful. My daughter is... 
uh, three months old, a little over three months old now. And uh, I, I don't have grandchildren, but children truly are a blessing. And I share in your joy in that regard. So let's uh, let, let's jump right into this. Uh, you you take a lot of your arguments from the prima pars of the Summa Theologiae, but you don't stick to just question three and question four. You you go all over the prima pars and, and you look for various ways in which you, we can talk about the existence of God. So let's talk briefly about the five ways, and then we can talk about some of the other things that you do in your book. Sure, sure. You know, in the five ways, I sometimes tell people they're as easy as one, two, three. Well, they're as easy to remember where they are, maybe, as one, two, three. <laughs> the prima part is the first part, the second question, the third article. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thomas goes into these five, five ways, and just, you know, very, very much in, in brief, because, you know, there's so much richness and depth to mm-hmm. them. But the first is the argument from movement or change, that, that nothing that we know that exists uh, can, can make itself something, can change itself, can make itself something that it's not. Like an example is, you know, a log may become uh, in flaming, it may become super hot and flaming, but it can't do it on its own unless something already hot acts upon it. So things like that. So if you work your way back, there, there must be some source of all movement, some source of all change that is not itself changed by something else. You know, the first unmoved mover that gets everything going, and, and that's an argument for God. And, and this one goes back way back to Aristotle. The second, just very briefly, the argument from uh, efficient causes, the idea that, well, we know nothing could cause itself because then it would exist, you know, before it existed, which makes no sense. So if we work our way back, we must eventually come to, to some, something that causes everything else but was itself uncaused. You know, an uncaused cause, which was also, Thomas, as we call God. Uh, third way, the argument from necessary being. And it's saying that, you know, we open up our eyes, we see everything that is in existence, we see our own lives. You know, we know we didn't give ourselves our own existence. We got that from mom and dad, of course. They got that from their parents. Mm-hmm. You know, everything that we see uh, at one point was not here, and at some point will not be here in, in the future in the way that it is now. So Thomas says that, you know, if everything is contingent, it may or may not exist. If at one point in time nothing existed, then nothing could ever exist. Right. But he's saying there must be one being that's absolutely necessary, that has to exist, mm-hmm. and then is the source and the font of all existence. So uh, that's the third. The fourth, just briefly, the argument from the degrees of being or perfection of being. We look around us and see different, different things at different levels of excellence in their existence. I mean, from inanimate objects to plants to animals to human beings and so on. And Thomas says there must be some ultimate standard of perfection and source of perfection from which all these lesser perfections come, and that is God. And then the fifth is, Thomas calls it the, uh, the argument from the governance of the world, uh, kind of the way that everything in the universe you know, has its purpose, even inanimate objects, you know, they follow laws of gravity and this and that. So kind of everything you know, works together for a certain purpose, and Thomas says that final purpose, the reason everything uh, works the way it is, is, is because of God. Mm-hmm. And that's about as succinct a presentation of the five ways of St. Thomas Aquinas you're probably ever going to hear. I, I teach uh, theology at the high school level, and um, I, I have to admit, when I teach Aquinas's five ways, I, I take far longer than, than the brilliant job you just did. I'll uh, be talking to Kevin Vost, who is a... Uh, who holds a doctorate in psychology and has taught psychology at numerous universities. Uh, He's a prolific writer, and he's appeared on Catholic media regularly. So, uh, Kevin, I'd like to explore further, moving beyond the five ways then. You explore the notions that are presented in question seven of the Prima Pass. For example, you talk about the infinity of God. Now, Aquinas makes a distinction that created things can have relative infinity, but God has absolute infinity. And why is that a crucial distinction to make? 
Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is in terms of, uh, and many of these attributes, they're related. Uh, another is, is something called eternity as opposed to time and something in the middle kind of called avaternity. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, yeah, so, so there can be relative infinities of things like, like uh, you know, uh, numbers and so on, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but nothing can exist, you know, infinitely without any beginning unless, unless itself was always there. Right. You know, it was absolutely uh, infinite, and God is the, the only one. It's, it's another way, too, that Thomas talks about in various ways, too, why, you know, some systems of mythology and religion have pantheons of gods, you know, multiple gods. Through all these proofs, too, show there can only be one God, because there can only be one being, you know, that, that's absolute, that is absolutely uh, infinite, that's, that lacks nothing whatsoever. Uh, and Thomason also goes from God's infinity into, you know, we call it his immensity, or yeah, the fact that God is present everywhere. Everywhere, he says, by his essence, presence, and power. God is in everything but because of the fact that it exists. Anything that exists participates in God's own being, and he's in things by his presence. Everything is present to God. God can see and is aware and has knowledge of absolutely everything. And God's in everything by his power because everything, you know, basically answers to the power of God and the very fact that it exists and, and stays in existence. Mm. And, and and that's entirely true. You know, uh, all of the principles that you've brought up uh, up till this point highlight Aquinas' very fundamental notion that within the created sphere, there can be no infinite regression. As we keep tracking back the sources, at some point, there must be a cessation to the sources because the universe itself, the material world, does not have infinity um, contained within it, especially within the material uh, realm of the sphere. So from there, you talk about the omnipresence of God. You talk about uh, the supreme oneness of God. So how do all these things help us, just knowing these attributes about God, how does this help us know God, though? Yeah, and that, that's a very good question, Marcus. And I sometimes say, as, as I thought about this after I wrote the book, that in reading this, I go through kind of three stages of wonder. Mm-hmm. And the first is, I say, I'm reading this, I wonder what Thomas is trying to say, because this is some deep material. Then as I begin to understand, I, I kind of wonder that Thomas was able to put all this together. It's just amazing. Mm-hmm. And then that third stage is the wonder I call with a capital W. That's where reading about this, you're drawn into the wonder and awesomeness of God. Mm. You know, to, to really start to juggle through, using our limited reason, to understand these different attributes about God's perfection and his goodness and his infinity and the fact that he's everywhere. So it really, it really uh, boggles the mind. It's an intellectual exercise. But then time and again, too, then Thomas shows precisely how the same principles are, are given to us just in a few words at times in Scripture itself. So, for example, you know, the, the third argument of God is the necessary being. When Moses asked God his name in the burning bush, God says, his name is, you know, I am who am. He says, tell him, he who is, you know, I am sent you. So time and time again, too, it's really beautiful uh, if you're already a believer in the faith, because you'll see how uh, this reason, everything we glean from reason is spelled out so beautifully as well uh, in Revelation. Mm-hmm. In scripture. And, and I love that you brought up the, the fact that God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush incident with uh, the words, I am. And then you, we get the great tetragrammaton, you know, yod He vav and He, those four letters that to this day remain fundamentally inscrutable. And Aquinas spends question 13 of the, of the Prima Paz talking about the names of God, specifically the fact that God has names. You even entitle the chapter, God has names. Uh, for those of you who possess the book, this would be page uh, 116 and following. So, you talked about the fact that God knows, God is a person, God exists. And then you, you, you talk about the, the 
the, the intimacy of possessing a name. We've got less than a minute in this segment. So uh, I just want to ask you to give us like a 10 second exhortation on why we ought to know God. And we'll continue this conversation on the other side of the break. Okay, yeah. For, for one thing, you know, if, if we come across people who are not believers, the better we know God, the more we'll be able to help them see that God, the idea of God itself is very reasonable. And if we already love God, the more we know Him, the more we're going to love Him. Mm, that, and that's fundamentally true. You can't love that which you do not know. We're talking to Kevin Vost, Dr. Kevin Vost. He holds a doctoral degree in psychology and he is a regular contributor and guest in Catholic media. Stay tuned as we continue the conversation on the existence of God and how to know God, how to know what God is that we may love who God is. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the Afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Krista in the Afternoon. My name is Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Krista on this lovely Thursday afternoon. We've been talking to Kevin Vost, uh, Dr. Kevin Vost, who holds a, degree, a doctoral degree in psychology and is a frequent contributor to the entire sphere of Catholic media. And we've been talking about what God is and how to know about God, that we may, that we may know God and love him as a person, as, as, as the person that God is. So, Kevin, uh, on the on the earlier side of the break, we talked about how God has names, and you talk about this in chapter 13 of your book, What is God?, published by Catholic Answers Press. So let's, let's, talk, let's talk about this. Aquinas talks about the names of God, the divine names. Why is this a crucial thing to, to consider in the life of the faithful? Yes, and I found this some of the more fascinating material. He has many, many articles where he looks at different, different things that we call God, different ways that we describe God, and he's, he's saying, you know, to what degree are they uh, appropriate to what degree do they begin to capture you know parts of the essence of God since Thomas explains that we can never know God in his full essence until he reveals it to us in a special way in heaven but through revelation and through reason we, we can obtain you know some proper knowledge of God and give him appropriate names and, and just one uh, that I really remember kind of being struck by and enjoying because because most of this part of the Summa is t- talking about God's you know uh, divine attributes, the, the fact that he's eternal and, and infinite and so on. But he goes through some names that we often call God that in terms of uh, Father, uh, mm-hmm. we think of Savior, you know, our, our Master, uh, things like this. And he says, well, these are appropriate, even though they're, they're temporal or they're time-limited names, because the names don't apply until you know, God entered into time and entered into relationship with us. But he says these are appropriate names. You know, we can call uh, God Lord. We can speak of Jesus as Savior, uh, and so on. So that's totally uh, appropriate. But in a way, though, we can run into trouble if we focus on only on those names and ignore the other names that really uh, speak more to His uh, eternity. So we could be prone to, to heresy if we think of uh, God in terms like Jesus Himself as purely time limited, forgetting that He was also the Word, you know, who is eternal, the great I Am, you mm-hmm. know, with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So that's a beautiful one, and Tom talks, Thomas talks about, like, uh, is it appropriate for us to, to call God things like, you know, uh, wise and things like that, and how that can be appropriate. Mm-hmm. Of course, he goes into, the, the, like, the most fitting name for God, being the, the, the great, you know, I Am that he tells uh, Moses. He talks about the name of God itself, just G-O-D, speaking to his uh, divine providence that everything, you know, he has set up the whole universe, everything answers to him. So I think it's really kind of uh, beautiful to go through and look at the different ways 
that, that we can name God and how it, you know, kind of, they kind of capture different aspects. Though God himself is simple, you know, we understand things one bit at a time. Mm-hmm. And these names can be very helpful and beautiful ways for us to get a, a deeper grasp of the, the awesomeness of God. This is a deviation from the conversation of God's name, but you made a very potent statement there, a very uh, profound statement. Uh, God is, in fact, simple. And the question then becomes, if God is that simple, then then it should be simple for me to get to know him. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a good point. And, and yeah, actually, the, right after the five proofs, the first attribute Thomas talks about is uh, God's what he calls divine simplicity. Mm-hmm. And he says uh, where he gives five ways for, for the proof of ex- God's existence, he actually gives eight ways that God is simple. Mm-hmm. And I found this very important because as an atheist, I knew that some of the modern atheists, they argue against the idea of God saying he had to be utterly complex. Right. He had to be more complex than the whole universe put together. And then Thomas starts by saying, no, in a way, God is is absolutely uh, simple. You know, he's undivided. He's pure spirit. He's not body and spirit. He's he's uh, has no parts. He's not a part of anything else. Mm-hmm. And uh, another profound one is that his nature uh, and essence are one. And one way to look at this is say, you know, that Mark's like, you know, you and I are human beings but neither one of us is humanity itself, right? whereas God is his Godhead. So yes, Thomas tells these, these multiple ways in which God is simple, and also a key aspect of that is that God is completely actualized. He has no potential. Mm-hmm. He doesn't like mm-hmm. us, and he might get better. He's already, you know, absolute perfection, totally actualized. So he doesn't change, uh, and he, he doesn't have parts. He doesn't have components. So it's just very, very kind of beautiful and mind-boggling right. to, deep, to dig into these arguments as Thomas presents them. And it's a real gear shift, too, in, in, into the way we ought to think about God compared to how uh, the, the secular notion, especially like you mentioned on Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and the mm-hmm. neo-atheists and, and how they present God. Uh, the, the fact is, God is truly, absolutely, utterly simple, and it's in his divine simplicity and unicity and absoluteness that he creates this very complex order of material creation. Oh, yeah, exactly. And Thomas has a beautiful quote that he says, basically, you know, if we look around and see, see you know, majestic mountains or see the stars up in the sky or see a beautiful little puppy or your new you know, baby or your new grandbaby, you know, God's, uh, Thomas says that in many ways the perfections of all these things, all this myriad of creation, reflects through their own little ways uh, what's there in God all in himself, mm-hmm. in his simplicity, in his exactly. unity, and that all this mu- multiplicity of perfection is, is showered down from him as its original source. Right, exactly. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite lines from the Prima Paz pertaining to God and, and uh, in reference to the created order is that all the perfections of created things pre-exist in a supereminent manner in the divine essence, which very simply means that any perfection that you and I can perceive in the world possesses this infinitely elevated reality in the divine essence. Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful, right? You know, even the fact that just the fact that we exist is because we're participating in God's existence. He's he's showering it down upon us. So every good thing, every perfection, being itself, it's there, you know, in its ultimate form in God, and he has chosen to let us participate, you know, in in a limited way while we're here on earth and in his and in as a, a deep a way as possible for us once we attain heaven. So, so I find it all very moving. And, and I probably should note, too, that you know, it, ha- it might have some use in helping people who don't believe, helping them see that, that belief is reasonable. But I start also by telling the story of St. Rose of, of Lima. 
Mm-hmm. And she was not a philosopher or theologian, but it said she had her priest confessor write out for her a list of 150 of God's perfections and said that then she used that as meditative prayer. It became one of her most, she said, one of her most powerful prayers. She said that the demons really uh, hated. So, so at the end of this book, I call out, I think, 133 God is statements that, that Thomas gives him within the Summa mm-hmm. that themselves can kind of be a source of, of meditation, you know, for us on the, on the awesomeness of God. Right. And you end your meditations with sit laus Deo in sempiternum. Translate that for those of us who don't quite pray in Latin as often. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, just pray, praise be to God forever. <laughs> Indeed. And, yeah. and, and I, I, would, I would second that statement. We ought to meditate on these things about God because they truly enhance our knowledge of the person of God and therefore allows us to fall in love with him. So going back to that conversation we were having on the divine names, uh, we're, we're talking to Dr. Kevin Vost. He is a former professor of psychology and a regular contributor to all facets of Catholic media, uh, Catholic Answers, Ave Maria Radio, EWTN, amongst other places. And the author of, uh, what was it, uh, about two dozen books now, am I right? Uh, yes, 24, or 25 Catholic books now. 25, way to go, over two dozen. Uh, and, and thank you, thank you for your contribution to the church. So let's return to this uh, conversation on the divine names then. Uh, can, how can we call God wise? We just talked about how he is super eminently transcendent to us. How can we call God good? Our reference of wisdom and goodness comes from, you know, like I can say uh, Al Cresta is wise. I can say... Uh, he is good, and, and he, it's because he's someone I know. But how do I say then that God is wise and God is good? Yes, you know, and one way I like to think about this is that, you know, like, uh, I, 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 having had the honor to meet Al, I agree he's a very good and wise <laughs> man. Uh, but I, I think he, even the great Al Cressa, we would say, we could probably probably say is, is wise and good with, with small w and a small g. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a wisdom and goodness that come ultimately from that wisdom and goodness with a capital G. God himself. So, so, you know, wisdom is the ability to, you know, do the proper judgments. Mm-hmm. And God is the source, you know, of all right judgment. You know, and goodness uh, is, is a desirability. You know, we want things that are good. We don't want things that are bad. And God is the fulfillment of all desire. You know, so he is that ultimate goodness, the total goodness with a capital G, the source of all goodness. So these names, uh, Thomas, is that we give God, yeah, we look around us. We see, you know, good people, wise people. Uh, you know, powerful things, powerful objects, and we say, well, God is that. God is powerful, except he's all-powerful, you know. So, so yeah, so we can start with things that are familiar to us and work our way back to God, which is kind of Thomas's general approach to begin with, even with God's existence. He starts with the, the actual evidence of our hard senses, mm. and then we reason our way back to say, hey, there must be this all-powerful God who's generating this universe that we see. You know, in these past two segments, you have repeated the term reason quite a bit. And, and again, I don't, I don't want any of our listeners to take that term for granted because you and I are using it presupposing that everyone understands we can reason things about God. You think about the Regensburg Address and Pope Benedict XVI quotes a, a, an Islamic uh, Persian scholar who says that God is not bound by any category. And, and therefore, no, not even reason can attain the truths about God. It's pure voluntarism. And yet, Christianity does not teach that at all. God is the divine logos. He is reason. So just help us understand that a little more in terms of you know, God's knowledge and re- revelation of himself. Yeah, that, that's a great one, a great thing to point out. And Thomas, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas argues it this way. He, he says that you know, reason, we can use reason to show that God exists. And even the current, our current catechism uh, echoes that. And it comes from like Romans uh, one twenty. St. Paul says, you know, from the created things, 
you know, we, we can work our way back to the fact that they were created. And there's a passage in Wisdom about the perceiving of the beauty of creation. We, it tells us about the Creator. So reason can show us that God exists, but it's very limited in, in what it can tell us about God. So that's where, too, you know, God has stepped in and, and revealed himself to us has shown us through his son. So like Thomas says, we, we can reason to all these attributes about God that I cover in this book, and Scripture will confirm many of them. But Thomas says some things, like the fact that God is three in one, the Trinity, that is something that is revealed to us, that reason itself doesn't show us that, mm-hmm. but it does not contradict reason. Right. So that's something else that Thomas and the Church teaches, that faith and reason, faith can take us beyond reason, but the two should never conflict, because there's just one truth, who, who is God. I remember when I was an atheist, and I, I went after my fellow friends who grew up in the Catholic Church with me, and I, I told them, I don't believe, you guys have never given me a reason for belief, and one of them answered me, well, you know, faith, you, you can't reason to things of faith, you can't understand it, you just have to believe it. And, and I looked at her like she had two heads, and I thought to myself, if only you could hear how ridiculous you, sa- you sound. And I, I know she meant well. I know she was trying to evangelize me, but that's, that simple sentence is, is, is a presentation of faith and reason being diametrically opposed, and the Church has never taught that. That, that is so right, and it's kind of, a, it's kind of an interesting that it's an, an off-topic in a way, if you don't mind. Oh, yeah, sure. I also enjoy uh, Stoic philosophy for some of their moral lessons. I've written a few books about that. Mm-hmm. And I have discovered, since I've written these books, that some people, some non-Catholic Christians read this wisdom of the Stoics, and they're, they're drawn away from their faith. Oh, wow. So I'm going to be a Stoic. It makes so much sense. Whereas the Catholics I've come across, it makes them appreciate their faith all the more, mm-hmm. knowing the Church has always embraced what's right in, in pagan ethical wisdom when they've got it right. Like Thomas Aquinas cites Seneca, uh, the great Stoic philosopher, right. yeah, multiple yeah. times in the Summa. So we're not afraid of truths that come through reason. Mm-hmm. Right. And and a Catholic ought to be able to read Marcus Aurelius, glean from it what is actually objectively true, and discard all things that don't lead back to salvation and the revelation of uh, man's worth in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, I'm full, in full agreement with you there. And I think, too, this is also was Thomas Aquinas' classic approach. You know, people know he... He used uh, like uh, uh, Aristotle a great deal. Yep. But he did. But he used Augustine even more, mm-hmm. and, and he used the Scripture even more than Augustine and, and, and of course, uh, Aristotle all put together. So it's that great harmony yep. of, of faith and reason, where where reason is drawn into the service of the faith. Right. We've been talking to Dr. Kevin Vost, a regular contributor to Catholic Media. Pick up his book, What Is God? Answering the World's Most Important Questions, published by Catholic Answers Press. Kevin, it was great having you on the program. I'd love to continue a conversation on a future program. I'm Marcus Peter. Stay tuned for the close of the hour. <laughs> 